It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Locked On Vikings. I'm your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. The show is on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Himalaya, whatever you like, or you can ask your smart device like Siri, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, play podcast Locked On Vikings, and it should take you right to the most recent episode. And today we are going to be talking about coverage, and specifically the defensive back group, but we'll talk about the linebackers in coverage a little bit as well, and really go over the performances of that unit. It's the one that's going to be in the most flux this offseason, and so it makes sense to kind of take stock of their performances in 2019 with all that in mind, and that brings up quite a few popular talking points. But first, it is time for your Viking of the day, and since we're talking secondary, who other than Joey Browner? Joey Browner, a first-round draft pick in 1983, was a cornerstone of the Vikings' defenses all the way up until 1991, where he did a retirement tour a year with the Buccaneers and then retired. In that career, he got 37 interceptions. He made four All-Pro teams, six Pro Bowls, and was eventually inducted, of course, into the Minnesota Vikings' Ring of Honor. He wasn't known so much as a ball hawk, however. He was more known as a hard-hitting safety, though those 37 interceptions are no fluke. But football in the 80s, especially in hindsight, is defined by its hard-hitting nature, the light-em-up, highlight-reel-type hits. And Joey Browner was definitely that guy for the Minnesota Vikings. He also has a little bit of a legacy as a USC Trojan, playing alongside recognizable names such as Ronnie Lott and, yes, that, Jeff Fisher. While he is yet to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, he's been a nominee on nine separate occasions. To me, Joey Browner is somebody who's also kind of gone against the grain, at least from an off-field perspective or personal perspective. He has three brothers. They all went to Notre Dame. And so when he came out of high school, another blue-chip player from a blue-blooded family, they all thought he was going to also go to Notre Dame. But he went to USC and became part of this, like, historic Trojans crew. But beyond the the hard-hitting, you know, playing career where he was known for, you know, hitting guys hard and getting in brawls, and it was kind of a whole thing that he was, like, I, I don't know, maybe even seen as, like, dirty but in the 80s, that was like way different. I'll link a really retro article uh, from the Chicago Tribune about like his perceived antics. And it seemed like he just kind of like hit somebody too hard and they got mad about it. And then it became a flag in a game. And Jerry Burns had to tell the media that he wasn't worried about it, which is a hilariously familiar thing considering what we're constantly asking our defensive-minded head coach about. But I digress, you know, he seemed like perhaps a, a misunderstood player because he played hard. But there's a moment after his retirement that really sticks out to me as something that I, I think he would want to be the the defining part of his legacy, and it's how he's actually done quite a bit of work and been very vocal about his thoughts on the Washington Redskins name debate. And it's really interesting. So Joey Browner is of American Indian descent. And so when he was growing up, he talks about being called things like Redbone and other similar slur and and bullying words that were, you know, used to disparage him because of the red color of his, the reddish, you know, tone of his skin. 
And so he kind of takes a really like personal stake in this whole debate. But the thing is, being a player, you can't really speak up about that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's not your place, especially in the 80s. It was a different time and it wasn't really your place to go, you know, start uh, making declarations about what you thought was and wasn't appropriate. I mean, look at when, you know, players nowadays get involved politically, there is still quite a bit of backlash and imagine how much worse that would have been in the 80s. So he was kind of forced to just like stay quiet. And now during the kind of peak of that, when it was all in court in around like, you know, 2012, 2013, Joey Browner really made his voice heard, and that's really admirable. He's also really active in that community. He's on the board of the American Indian Movement and has done quite a bit of work to try to lift those people up, and I think that that's definitely worth celebrating. And uh, before I move on to the actual Viking secondary talk, I just want to mention that uh, I usually try to stray away from that if I can, um, but this time for the purposes of telling the story, I felt it was important not to censor myself. Otherwise, it would feel like a somewhat redacted version of the story that loses a lot of meaning. Uh, and if you want to know more about it, I've, I've linked uh, some materials in the show notes. So moving on from that, let's talk about coverage and the Minnesota Vikings, because this is the part of the defense that I think got the most talk, and with pretty good reason. Throughout the whole course of like November and some of December, the Vikings had like this really big coverage issue and it kind of reared its head in October a little bit. I think, you know, Washington really started that trend. And I think a lot of it is schematic, which means that with all of the numbers that I'm about to throw out and all of the performances that I'm about to throw out, how much they reflect on the players is going to be diminished a little bit because Mike Zimmer's scheme, for one, it just generally asks a lot of its corners and in coverage in general. And, you know, of the linebackers, they often have to, you know, cover a lot of land to get to a landmark. I briefly touched on that when we talked about the front seven uh, the other day, but, uh, you know, this is where we'll talk a little bit more in depth about that. But it often... until later in the season, until the bye week where Mike Zimmer changed specifically this, it really put a lot more pressure on the corners to win without safety help because he wanted to use his safety, you know, use Harrison Smith to roam and be in run support and blitz and, you know, jump routes underneath and be robbers and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of had to back off of that. And I think that took a little bit of the teeth out of the defense. And that's what, you know, caused things like the Seattle game to happen when they also didn't quite have that adjustment down yet. So there were some miscommunications. There were blown coverages. I think blown coverages were a bigger problem in 2018 than they were in 2019, but I don't think they were completely solved, right? We still had just a couple too many instances of of miscommunication and somebody getting a huge play on them. A lot of it was, you know, Xavier Rhodes, and we'll talk plenty about him. But overall, I think it, it would... Be I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there was kind of a schematic issue, and the story of that schematic issue is that the corners weren't playing well enough to do the incredibly difficult thing that the scheme typically asks them to do, and Zimmer had to adjust to not ask them to do something so difficult at the cost of not being able to do as much fun stuff with your safeties, and they couldn't be as disruptive, and I think the general average went down, but the floor came way up, and that was kind of the decision that he had to make, and I think it's one that he didn't want to make, but it's the decision he had to make. Hi, this is David Locke, the CEO of the Locked On Podcast Network. In this crazy, unprecedented, and unnerving time, I know we're all living our lives a little differently. I thought we had some of our sponsors 
over the time that might be able to help you out. So we've reached out to them to get you specific offers. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for their first seven days. Start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app, and use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA. Anxiety, stress, need something to calm yourself down? The Calm app is available for you. 40% off to our listeners at calm.com slash LOCKEDONNBA. Stuck at home, want fitness? Echelon Fit has been a sponsor of ours. And you can go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-B-A. And if you're looking to add some new knowledge and get a little smarter in your free time, Masterclass, or at least your time at home, masterclass.com slash P-E-R is offering 15% off. If you missed any of those, go to lockdownpodcast.com slash offers. That's lockdownpodcast.com slash offers. Thank you very much for tuning in to Lockdown Podcast Network. We hope to be here for you to give you a relief and respite from all the other news. And thanks very much. Be safe and practice your social distancing. Now, before I get into some of the more individual performances, I just want to let you all know that Locked on ad space is for sale. You hear how I do ads on this show and the love that I can put into them and and especially live integrated reads and especially for local businesses. Local fans like to support local businesses and that might be you. So if you're interested in Locked on ad space and engaging the kind of people that listen to a daily football podcast, the kind of passionate, engaged fans... Text advertising to 33777. That's advertising to 33777. Or go to lockedonpodcasts.com slash advertising, and we'll get you all set up for advertising success here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Moving on, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the individual coverage performances. And uh, let's start up front with Eric Kendricks, because I think he's a, he's a good... Uh, you know, optimistic place to start, right? He kind of earned that all-pro designation. A lot of the way that he earned that was through coverage. And it's no secret, he had a great season. There's no uh, special trick to that. He was just genuinely good, and every way that you could possibly examine linebackers in coverage reflects really, really well on Eric Kendricks. He was as good as you thought he was. And keep in mind, again, that Zimmer's scheme asks defensive players to do really, really difficult things all the time. Eric Kendricks, much like what I described with Barr a couple episodes ago, has to cover quite a bit of distance to get to his landmark a lot of the time. And a lot of the time, he was the one who was tasked with guarding like a like a running back, you know, sticking with Saquon Barkley or somebody like even like Miles Sanders on, you know, angle routes and stuff. And that's a really, really difficult task for him. And he was able to keep that, or he was able to execute that incredibly well, and I think he deserves definitely to to have the shout out uh, for being, you know, like one of the better coverage players. So on the aggregate level, the Vikings actually had one of the better coverage grades in the league. They actually ranked third in PFF coverage grade, which might be kind of weird sounding to you. But remember, that includes the safeties and Anthony Harrison, Harrison Smith. Both of them had great coverage grades. Eric Kendricks had a great coverage grade. J. Ron Curse had a very, very good coverage grade. And so that adds up to some really, really good stuff and actually overshadows the impact of, you know, the two corners on the outside having a poor coverage grade. So that uh, is something that PFF isn't really waiting for, right? Like the fact that the linebacker had a phenomenal coverage grade is weighted, you know, linebacker snaps are weighted the same as cornerback snaps, which is probably incorrect and it makes those aggregates a little bit misleading. But suffice to say that Eric Kendricks was excellent. 
I disagree with PFF on Anthony Barr in coverage. They gave Anthony Barr like a 40 grade in coverage, which is like abysmal. That's TJ Clemmings bad. And and I really disagree that he was. I think they're definitely punishing him too hard for poor plays, considering A, that the asks are very difficult all the time, and that he has, you know, this hidden ability to mess up protections. And if he can get even close to a landmark, it can lead to a sack. And I don't think that they properly credit him for that. I don't think that they should change their system to accommodate it, but I do think it's worth pointing out that he was probably better than his grade, at least in my opinion. And to the same point that I harped on a ton last year around this time when we thought Anthony Barr was going to leave in free agency, he is not easily replaceable. There was even a lot of talk. The the Falcons announced, weirdly, that they weren't going to... uh, negotiate any contract extensions with Vic Beasley, who's going to become an unrestricted free agent now. And I actually, somebody uh, tweeted at me, hey, should the Vikings, you know, get rid of Barr and bring this guy in as a cheaper option? And for one, his contract doesn't really make sense to do that. If you cut him or trade him, you incur $10 million of dead cap. You don't really save that much money. You save a bunch in future years, but that's not really the problem here. And it would be really difficult to replace without actually, uh, you know, but with the like $2 million of cap savings left over. Otherwise, you've just kind of gotten worse and cheaper and more expensive. And I think, you know, the speed of bar and his ability and coverage is just irreplaceable. There's just not a lot of people. And Eric Hendricks is one of the other rare people that can do this. And the Vikings are lucky to have two who can line up in the B gap and then get to like a hook zone or, or like go out into the flat. It's just not easy to do. And the fact that he can do that, um, you know, and, and he failed probably too many times. Like, I don't think he had like as good a year. I'd say he had a year that was about as good as like Mackenzie Alexander's, right? Like it was definitely flawed. And he actually did have some moments where he lined up on a wide receiver or a wide receiver ended up getting in his match zone. He had to carry the wide receiver all the way across and he totally gives up a touchdown or something going from that. That has happened to him one too many times. And, and I definitely don't like it. I think that's more of a schematic issue than it is a bar issue. But that's another thing that's going to like get him a negatively graded play. Not necessarily his fault, but it is going to end up affecting his grade in the end. All in all, I just think PFF was a little bit too harsh on him, and uh, I personally am more than satisfied with his play in all facets in the 2019 season, and uh, this is one of those times when the grade isn't really going to back me off. Other, uh, you know, tertiary guys like Mackenzie Alexander and J. Ron Curse. Mackenzie Alexander actually had probably a worse year than you might kind of think, although the Vikings really missed him. You know, I mean, both him and Hughes were out for the playoffs, and the Vikings clearly missed that. There was a lot that happened out of the slot because Anderson Dejo had to be there, or Eric Wilson had to be there, and that was, of course, uh, an issue. But I don't think he had, like, a poor season. I think he actually, he, he was probably, like, average to above average. Had a a singular, like, elite game, at least by grades and, and coverage stats. That was against Philadelphia. His, actually, his his worst game of the year, and this is maybe why his perception is a little inflated, was the Week 14 snooze fest where Detroit came into U.S. Bank Stadium and completely collapsed and fell apart. That was actually the worst uh, coverage game, at least uh, by grade, that Mackenzie Alexander had. And of course, we all forgot about everything that happened in that game. But he got picked on by Dallas a little bit. He was concerningly picked on in the Week 17 game against the Bears a little bit. And, uh, you know, rumor has it that he wasn't happy that he had to play in that in the first place. And then he played poorly. And that's not a very good look. Um, and then, of course, you know, that hurt his knee. So he probably should. He was probably right. He shouldn't have been in that game in the first place. But he also was playing poorly in that one. And so evaluatively, that's a little concerning. But I think all that 
that's a little bit of a nitpick. I'm totally fine with extending uh, Mackenzie Alexander, and I actually think it should be somewhat prioritized. I think, and I'll get to Anthony Harris soon here, but I think Anthony Harris is probably a bigger priority, but I do think that Mackenzie Alexander is an important player that you should try to keep, especially if you're going to lose one of Waynes and Rhodes in the offseason, and you're going to have to kick Mike Hughes outside. You're going to want a good nickel cornerback, and I think Mackenzie Alexander can be that. He's come along really well over the course of his rookie contract, and you know, once he like bought in and the kind of the, the whole story of that, um, I, I like him at nickel and I think he's definitely worth keeping around. But we'll talk about the safeties in the corners, the guys you really want to know about coming right up. Moving right along, we've kind of covered the emotions of J. Ron Curse uh, on this show as he has kind of been very vocal about how he doesn't really feel appreciated in Minnesota. And it does kind of seem like Minnesota probably undervalues him and is going to let him walk. And uh, I, I think he's a starting quality player, but they don't have a place where J. Ron Curse is going to start. I think, uh, you know, re-signing him and keeping him around and letting go of a more expensive veteran is probably a prudent move, but it's not one the Vikings are going to make, it seems like. That's just me reading the tea leaves, though. Though it's worth mentioning that he was one of the the players on the Vikings with an elite coverage grade. He played great out of the nickel when he was there. He actually played pretty well at safety when he was there, when he had to be there. So I, I think that J. Ron Curse is definitely a starting quality player. I mean, somebody's going to get a steal for him because I think he's better kept secrets. But let's move on to the real meat and potatoes. Uh, let's talk about the safeties. This is an optimistic moment, right? Anthony Harris really earned uh, uh, the buzz that he's getting now. Everybody's calling him, you know, an all-pro snub and a Pro Bowl snub, and I definitely agree with that. He got a lot of interceptions. I definitely don't think that's how you should evaluate him. Interceptions, of course, sometimes they're a tipped ball that falls right to him or a really, really bad pass that goes his way or, a, you know, a final Hail Mary that he happens to come down with, and there was a little bit of that. That said, the conclusion that interceptions lead you to this time happens to be correct. It just is correct because of other things. And then he has actually made some really, really incredible plays. Uh, you know, carrying things across the field, improvising when he realizes he has the license to do so. I think about the week one interception where, I mean, he had, I think he was in man coverage against a tight end who was pass blocking. So once he recognized that he was pass blocking, he realized he could freelance and then he backpedaled and jumped a route and took a, a Matt Ryan interception. That's an unbelievable play. He was on the other side of the field for an interception against Aaron Rodgers in the Monday night uh, week 16 game, and he carried a, an over all the way across the field and jumped it for a pick. That That's unbelievable. That's just an absolutely insane play. And he's got a lot of those up his sleeve. So I, I think that he should be the number one priority for the Vikings to bring back. I, I really would. I, I would get rid of a lot of Vikings defenders to, to bring Anthony Harris back. I, genu I think he handily outplayed Harrison Smith this year. And that's not a knock on Harrison Smith, who I thought wasn't like as good as he always is. I don't think he should have made the Pro Bowl, but like I don't think he was that far off of that, and he was on a pretty good pace. And it, like the the safeties played great, and there's not really any two ways about that. Harrison Smith took a few bad angles. That's the one like criticism that I have. There's a couple of plays. There's one in the Seattle game, a uh, couple in the the final divisional game against the the 49ers where he just took a bad angle and and missed a tackle, and that's uncharacteristic of him. Um, and the thing about guys like Harrison Smith and Rhodes, who we'll get to in a sec here, is, you know, how many good years do they have left? I think Smith has plenty of good years left. I don't think he's a, he's a cap casualty candidate, but I like the way his contract is. I actually like him for a restructure. That said, both safeties played great, and they definitely aren't the problem here. The problem, if anything, is that, the, is that Mike Zimmer, like I said before, because of the struggles of the corners, 
had to use the safeties to like take care of that problem. The fact that the safeties are good is great because it meant that you could kind of mitigate the issues at corner, but not being able to use that great safety play to be more disruptive and instead using it to cover up your own flaws is an unfortunate wasted opportunity because, and let's get into these guys now, Rhodes and Waynes both struggled a lot. Rhodes' struggles have been really well documented. I've talked about it a ton on this podcast, but I'll go over it again in case you're new. Here's the deal. Rhodes was in his head all year. He was tasked, and, he, and he's given a difficult job, right? Be on an island against their best receiver all the time. That was essentially his job up until, like, week three of this year when Devontae Adams absolutely ate his lunch in week two, and uh, then he was taken off of shadow duty pretty much for the rest of the year, and, and the Vikings played sides for the rest of the year where, where Rhodes would line up only on the right side, and you could put whoever you want on Rhodes. You just have to line him up on that side of the field. But he was still left one-on-one very often with no safety help, with coverages rolling to the other side so that, you know, Rhodes was alone and, and on an island one-on-one with somebody, and that means he has to be very good at anticipating routes and anticipating route patterns and concepts and anticipating exactly where he needs to be to be physical. He was really bad at guessing, and that is what got him in trouble all the time. He would overrun, he would underrun, he would turn his hips too early, to turn his hips too late, and, and really a lot of it was guessing, and a lot of it came to a point, and I talked about this in, in a mid-season podcast, he got tilted, and then he started trying to tailor his game toward making up for all his bad play by making a big interception or making a big hit or something, and that's when he really started making mistakes. When he tried so hard to guess and he tried to play so aggressively, double moves just torched him, he started blowing coverages thinking he had more help than he did, and that, I think, is really the mental part of the game that deteriorated for him. And with Rhodes, it's difficult to see that coming back because it's just, it's hard for me to see, okay, why is, is he not going to do that in 2020? If he's not going to do that in 2020, what's going to change? I, I, he might not even have as much safety help. He certainly won't have as much help all the way around the secondary, and he'll be under more pressure, if anything. It's really difficult for me to see Xavier Rhodes returning to his 2017 form, especially now he's going to be on the wrong side of 30, and of course that's, you know, that, that, that'll that only get worse with time. I don't think, I, I still stick to the fact that I don't think it was an athletic issue. People say he looked slow because usually they're just watching on TV, and the camera pans over, and he's two steps behind, and he went, oh, he was slow. But in in reality, it's because he tried to jump a double move and he had to turn around and catch up. And typically you can actually really tell is, are they catching up with the receiver? And Rose was catching up with the receiver quite often. So I don't think he's slow. I don't think age has gotten him yet, but it's going to come eventually. And as he get, and and, I mean, how many years does he have left? And I think that goes into your like contract uh, preparations and, and the kind of mathematics you're going to do there, the calculus you're going to do there. On the other side, Trey Waynes, I think, had a pretty rough year also, and it was overshadowed because Rhodes was doing so poorly on the other side, and that was so much more surprising. But Waynes, throughout his whole career, has been a target magnet. I mean, he has been one of the most targeted cornerbacks in the league every year he's been in uh, in Minnesota. And his targets this year were a lower quality. And that's a good thing because, you know, that was people trying to, you know, throw now routes at him or throw little slants at him, little ins, very small patterns, forcing Trey Waynes to make a tackle. And he's a great tackler. So he was pretty good at that. Amari Cooper got him a couple times and that'll happen. But, uh, and I think Tyreek Hill got him a couple times too, which also will happen. Uh, But other than that, I mean, he was still, he still remains like a sound tackler, but 
he does give up just a few too many targets for my liking. He gave up a few, uh, a couple of like notable big plays. The the one against the Broncos on the trick play. Uh, I believe there was one against Philadelphia. He gave up. So there were a couple times that he kind of fell apart and gave up that big play. But mostly he let a lot of things get caught in front of him and make a tackle. And that's what we hate about Trey Waynes, right? He plays off coverage, plays very conservatively, lets things get caught, and then goes up and makes the tackle. So he invites targets to himself. He invites production to himself. And I think that that's a flaw that's not going to change with him. That said, if I'm picking between Rhodes and Waynes right now, I think I would rather have Trey Waynes just because I, I can deal with that problem, right? That is a level of production that he will always give up and always be good for, but it's not enough to break a game wide open. Trying to guess and getting owned on a double move or getting, you know, communications wrong all the time. I mean, those are situations that are just kind of unforgivable. And I think that for that reason, I would rather give the Xavier Rhodes money to Trey Waynes in the offseason. We'll see what the Vikings actually do. I think the Vikings are higher on Xavier Rhodes than we all expect or and, and higher than we all want. But, you know, we'll, we'll, of course, see, like, how all of that shakes out. But if I had to guess, I, you know, if, if I were doing it, I would probably cut Rhodes and try to re-sign Waynes. As I think the Vikings are going to behave, I think they're going to let Waynes walk, try to re-sign Alexander and Anthony Harris with, you know, money they save by, I don't know, cutting Paul Joseph or, you know, restructuring a bunch of people or extending Kirk Cousins or however you want to save the cap. And I think whatever they do with that, they'll use that money for uh, Anthony Harris and Mackenzie Alexander before they even think about going to outside free agents. And I wouldn't hate that idea. I would probably disagree with with that strategy on the corners. Um, but otherwise, I, I think if you keep Harris and Alexander in the building, then uh, everything else is a little bit lower impact just because you don't have so much turnover on the secondary. And of course, you have Holton Hill, who played well in relief, and uh, Anderson Deho, who played better than I thought he would in relief. Of course, you know, that's not a very reliable option moving forward. You also had Eric Wilson, who was supposed to be the better coverage linebacker. He struggled quite a bit in coverage and played like a backup. Eric Wilson's a backup, and I think that's the ceiling he hit. That's great for an undrafted free agent, and I'd love to keep him on the roster till someone beats him out. Uh, ben Gedeon, of course, you know, he only really comes in on base package uh, setups that are not very typically coverage snaps, so you never get a huge sample on it. So with that, that is going to do it for today's episode of Locked On Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow. I have a very special guest coming on tomorrow to uh, talk some X's and O's, if everything goes well, of course. And if there's no crazy breaking news, we'll do that. Uh, in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. Show's on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. The show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, or just ask your smart device to play podcast Locked On Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow, and as always, Skull. Hey, sports fans. My name is Ben Beacon. I'm the host of Locked On Wolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves podcast on the Locked On NBA Network. The Wolves might be in the middle of what's turned out to be a pretty miserable season, but there's still plenty to talk about. From the aftermath of the trade deadline to looking ahead at what moves Gerson Rosas and the front office might be planning for the summer to the possibility that all-star snub Carl Anthony Towns could go off on any given night, it's still going to be a fun spring. Tune into Locked On Wolves daily, Monday through Friday. I'm Ben Beacon with Locked On Wolves, and we'll catch you next time.